Not too long ago, the standard for mobile data communications was called GPRS, and that standard was protected using the stream ciphers GA1 and GA2, designed ostensibly in order to encrypt communications across cell phone towers between mobile devices. As it turns out, these stream ciphers were appear to have been designed with effective security limits that are well below what was thought to be the case. Could these ciphers have been backdoored intentionally? Was the design process compromised in order to account for export control regulations that were in vogue at the time? We're joined today by the authors of research on this topic to discuss their results and more. Gaetan Laurent is a researcher at INRIA and the team COSMIC, working on symmetric cryptography. He received his PhD from ENS Paris in 2010 on the design and analysis of hash functions and has been working on the construction and analysis of symmetric cryptography primitives since then. He is also interested in cryptanalysis of modes of operations on block ciphers and generic attacks and on the practical security impact of cryptanalysis. In particular, his work has contributed to the deprecation of obsolete standards, such as the MD5 hash function, the triple desk uh, cipher and the SHA-1 hash function. And we're also joined by Howard Radum. Uh, he is a PhD in cryptography from the University of, of in Bergen in 2005. He obtained his PhD in cryptography in 2005. And he has worked with cryptography research most of his time since then. He now works as the leader of the group for crypto research at Saimula UIB. His interests are cryptanalysis, fully homomorphic encryption, and lattices. Hello, Howard. Hello. So today we are going to be discussing a very interesting new paper titled Cryptanalysis of the GPRS Encryption Algorithms GAA1 and GA2. These are, as the title says, encryption algorithms for GPRS. And this is a paper with some serious claims. Uh, the paper claims that GAA1 can be broken uh, with uh, in time 2 to the 40, and that GA2 has uh, similar but less serious, apparently, weaknesses. So these are ciphers that were used to encrypt um, commun GPRS communications, including data communications on, on mobile phones for a long time, but also a while ago. So what we're, we're going to be discussing today is uh, these uh, vulnerabilities, how they work, how they're exploitable, whether they currently have or used to have any real-world impact, and also the charge that apparently at least some of these vulnerabilities were intentional. So the designers of the ciphers uh, implemented deliberate weaknesses to deliberately um, make some of these ciphers work at a lower security parameter than advertised. So that's a very serious claim, and there's also a lot of implications there. Um, how can we be confident in today's ciphers? How come this weakness was deliberately engineered? And was it deliberately engineered? How can we tell? In a lot of cases, it's very difficult to tell whether a, a cipher was deliberately weakened or not, and uh, standards of evidence can uh, be serious. All right, so let's start maybe with the first question. What the heck are GA1 and GA2? So these are ciphers that I have personally never heard of before. Uh, of course, I've never looked at GPRS before. 
but I maybe someone could tell us more about what they are and their relevance. You know, how what is the relevance of these ciphers in real world usage today? So, Howard, go ahead. Okay, so the ciphers are uh, well, as you said, encrypting the uh, data traffic in mobile network. Uh, GA one and GA two was the earliest ones. Now you have GA three and four. So GA one and two they were based on linear feedback shift registers and a filter function. So they do simply they're stream ciphers, right? They do data encryption of, of the of the data stream. Right. And so could you give us like some real world examples of how they were used? And also it's kind of a timeline for where their usage peaked in society generally. Well, the timeline, uh, I mean, GA1 was introduced in 1998, I believe. And I guess that's when uh, GPRS, or I mean, the 2G standard came. Um, I mean, they run uh, automatically, right? It's, it's by the, your, your phone, uh, the... the uh, subscription, I mean, phone subscription, uh, and so on. So, so I mean, no user involvement. Gita, you had something to say? Sorry. Yeah, maybe just to, to add a little bit. So, uh, GPRS here was used starting 1998. And to, to give you maybe a timeline, the first iPhone came out in 2007. At the time, it was still using GPRS. 3G was out, but it was still not widely used, and the first iPhone was relying on GPRS. So that gives you a bit of a, uh, an idea of when it was used. And then, of course, 3G slowly replaced those 2G standards. But I guess until 2010, it was still a widely used uh, uh, standard. Yep. And, of course, the second iPhone was specifically called iPhone 3G, and the, the selling feature was that it, it had uh, 3G support. So I guess we could say that the practical relevance of GE1 and GEA2 today is limited, right? Uh, are they deployed? Like if I grab my phone and I go on the street and go to Paris and run around for a day, am I likely to ever connect to a network using GA1 and GA2? So today, no. Um, operators have moved to the, the newer standards, GA3, GA4. But there are some cases apparently where you can still be using GA1. There's been... Um, a, a, um, sorry, there's a report that came out uh, uh, together with our paper that uh, did a survey of usage of uh, G GEA algorithms in the world. And they pointed out that there's one uh, operator, well, they found one operator in Asia that still uses GEA1 in some cases. So it's rare, but it exists. In most cases, you will be using GEA3 or GEA4, rarely GEA2 and extremely rarely GEA1. Yes, uh, we can also add that uh, that the GA1 and GA2 were supposed to be deprecated in, back in 2013, and they were not supposed to be around. But but manufacturers have still continued to support these algorithms. Uh, but now we have got reassurances from CSMA that uh, now they will really be banned and, and will not be able to use them anymore. Okay, so... It's still interesting, though, because um, what you're saying in the paper is that, sure, these ciphers are not particularly relevant today, but there was a time when they were the standard on all data communication, satellite communication on smartphones. Uh, well, feature phones, I guess. Smartphones maybe uh, were a bit rare at the time. And was that also coincidentally the same time period where uh, these ciphers could have been um, broken via 
sort of like semi-commercially available hardware. So doing 40 bits um, time calculations today is probably something I can do on my phone, on my smartphone or on my laptop. Um, but is it also the case that uh, these attacks as you found them could be exploited back then? Uh, and could they only be exploited by nation state attackers when during the time when GA1 and GA2 were, were, were uh, popular standards? Or could they also be exploited by basically anyone with a $2,000 to spend on a computer? Well, they, they could certainly be exploited back at that time as well. Uh, 40-bit security was, was weak uh, even then. Uh, for comparison, we can compare to to like uh, the old DES that's uh, algorithm. Uh, it had fifty six bits of security, and during the nineties, you know, people actually developed uh, so hardware that could exhaustively search fifty six bit keys. Um, they cost from yeah whatever from like a million in the beginning of the nineties to to million dollars, but they become cheaper and cheaper. But this is forty bit security, so it's I mean, 16 million times easier. Yes, and the, I remember that the Electronic Frontier Foundation sponsored Deep Crack, uh, which was a dedicated hardware um, system to break DES uh, in the late 90s, if I recall correctly. And so this is this is fascinating. So you're saying that um, the standards for data communications on feature phones um, a decade or so ago um, were designed with intentional weaknesses, but that those intentional weaknesses could be broken by anyone with a standard set of computing hardware. So I, I could have probably used my own personal computer at the time. Uh, Gaetan, anything to say about that? Yeah, maybe just to add something, you wouldn't have done it with your own computer because the, the attack we described requires a relatively large amount of memory, something around 40 gigabytes. So it was not impossible at the time, but you would need a big server. So maybe in the order of 2,000 euros and with about one day of computation, you could, uh, you could run over attack. Right, but any sufficiently motivated researcher or, or even just enthusiast you know, like could have could have uh, found a server like that. I suppose back then you didn't really have AWS and, and all that stuff, and you couldn't like just. But you could conceivably obtain forty gigabytes of RAM. It's not it's not completely out of the question. Yeah, absolutely. So absolutely. it was not uh, it was not only for nation state attackers. It was uh, widely available for anyone with money. Yes. Right. So this is very interesting. I, I'm going to jump ahead. We're going to go back to how the weaknesses work and how they're exploited. But I just want to talk uh, high level over the significance of, this, of these weaknesses, because usually in the past, when we've seen weaknesses deliberately inserted into cryptographic standards, such as, uh, so one example that comes to mind is dual ECDRBG, the uh, uh, NSA sponsored random byte generator uh, that relies on elliptic curves and so I believe it was Neil Ferguson, right? Who uh, uh, it was? It was some guy from Microsoft, and then Dan Bernstein also uh, raised awareness, and then Edward Snowden raised even more awareness. But I think it was people from Microsoft Research at the beginning who, who, and anyway, some a bunch of bunch of smart people uh, eventually discovered that this random byte generator could be backdoored and could be, and that backdoored could be exploited. Uh, Bruce Schneier also had something to do with that, if I recall correctly. Um, and that backdoor could be exploited, but you had to know certain secret values. You had to know some P value and some Q value, and only the designers could potentially have access to these values. And so even if I had a super fancy $10,000 computer, 
uh, a few years ago, uh, I conceivably could not uh, exploit any potential backdoor in, in that design. And uh, as far as I understand, the general public was not able to exploit a backdoor in dual ECD RBG. So what's going on here? Did they just want to also include a uh, 40-bit uh, security backdoor? But did they did they mess up? I mean, doesn't it seem... Because you can imagine that a, a nation state is reasoning that they need to have special access for national security reasons. But uh, you can't imagine them also reasoning that everyone on the street needs to have special access for national security reasons if they can afford a very good gaming PC, essentially. Um, so what's the reasoning there, uh, Gaetan? So that's actually a very good question, yes. The, the, the backdoor in Dual EC is an asymmetric backdoor where you have to know a secret and then you can break the system. Here in uh, GEA1, it's, uh, it's a backdoor that anybody can use. There's no secret to use the backdoor. So it's more like a weakening of a cipher. So, um, yeah, I mean, I can just add that uh, that uh, the the algorithm for GA one was sort of secret, right? Uh, only only the phone vendors uh, should should get it, and then under a non disclosure agreement, etc. So, so I mean, it was not public. So, so I guess that's why the kind of secret that you had to know in order to exploit this one. But of course, that's not very secret to to, to an algorithm that exists in in all mobile phones, right? So it's different than the dual uh, ECD RBG uh, in, in that sense. So I, I was going to ask whether the implementation in those mobile phones was significantly obfuscated in any way, but I don't think we even had very good obfuscation technology at the time. So someone could just get a phone and reverse engineer it, right? And get the algorithm or? Uh, maybe, maybe that's speculation from my side. Uh, I don't know how hard it was. I mean, in our case, okay. uh, we we actually got the source code from uh, from, from a source, uh, so so we, so we could just see what what was going on there. Okay. Well, so I mean, what's what's the reasoning there? Uh, yes, get on. Go ahead. Maybe going back on the, the backdoor aspect, uh, something also to to. To know is that the encryption in uh, in 2G and still in 3G, 4G, 5G, as far as I know, it's only an encryption between your phone and the antenna. Everything that goes afterward inside the phone network is in the clear. So from uh, from the state point of view, if they want to listen to your phone, they don't have to break this encryption. They can just wiretap later. So I don't know exactly what is the reasoning uh, in weakening this cipher because for listening purpose, lawful interception, they don't have to break the cipher. So maybe one other explanation is that there were, yeah, it's it's confusing, yes. <laughs> so maybe another reason is because there were export regulations, that it was forbidden to sell cryptography to some countries because cryptography was considered like a weapon, so you, you couldn't export it. So maybe that's why they decided to put weak crypto because then you would only be giving weak weapons to, to countries. But yeah, I don't completely understand that. That is incredibly strange. That's actually bizarre. So actually, when I'm communicating over the phone, the everything I'm saying is in the clear within the servers. It's basically like TLS, right? So it's meant to protect data until it reaches the service provider, similar to how, for example, when I use TLS to talk to Facebook, let's say, well, it's not exactly like TLS because TLS is also protecting uh, your data from the ISP. Uh, yeah, that's a bad analogy. But um, so if yeah, so if lawful inter- intercept was the concern, you don't even have to weaken it. So I guess maybe it was gratuitous. Maybe it was to deal with export controls. That's that's too bad. All right. Uh, yes, H- Howard. 
Yeah, it's probably to do with the export controls. That's what you say in the paper. And, and I mean, Etsy has more or less confirmed that that was the case uh, back then. So, so it's just an easy way out. Another question is, you can say, is uh, okay, so why couldn't they be upfront about it? Why not just assign a 40-bit cipher that is 40-bit that everybody can see? Instead, they made something that was looks like a 64-bit cipher, but actually it's only 40. So... Okay. Um, well, let's talk more about how the attack works. So let's start with GA1. Can you give us an overview of maybe how GA1 was designed? You don't need to go into details, but you know um, how a linear feedback shift register stream cipher works and how you were able to uh, get the initial insight, I suppose, for the attack and um, how you were able to exploit it. Yeah, okay, I can go first maybe. So, so uh, yeah, GA1, it has uh, three linear feedback shift, re- shift registers um, of length uh, around 30, 31, 32, 33, I think. Um, so these LFSRs, they, they, need, uh, they need their tap positions, right? Uh, their, their feedback and so on. So then you have to choose a primitive polynomial, uh, I mean, now, now we're getting into the details, but there you, there are many primitive polynomials you can choose from, and you just need to pick one. One is not worse than the other for a single uh, stream cipher. So, but in this particular case, uh, two of the LFSRs together for, form the weakness, which is the backdoor. Then, um, so so that's GA one. So so how did we start this? I mean, this actually uh, was initiated at the. Uh, at a, at a small workshop that we had, a group of cryptographers who gathered at the island of Bochum in uh, in Germany. So there, someone gave a presentation uh, about these algorithms, uh, and in particular, that they were worth studying more. So, so we were a group there, actually the, the co-authors of the paper then, that gathered and, and started analyzing this. And, and quite quickly, we found the, the back door, and then most of the time, we, we actually spent on the GEA2, which was much harder uh, problem, but, but uh, was still crackable. So GEA2, yeah, yeah. let me just add that GEA2, what's the difference between GEA1 and GEA2? They're actually quite similar. It's just that in GEA2, you add a fourth uh, shift register uh, to, to the design, and, and that actually closes this backdoor, then, then the attack doesn't work again uh, for, for GEA1. So that's interesting. So they they released GA2 with the explicit purpose of closing the backdoor. Did they do that after the export controls were relaxed somehow? Or was it still the case that you had to have 40 bits of security and somehow they fixed the No, backdoor? the, the, uh, the uh, GA2 was released apparently because the export controls were, were lifted. I see. Okay. So th- well, there you go. That's That's very strong evidence that it had everything to do with the export control. Yes, I would say so. Um, okay, so how, how can you be so sure that this weakness was intentional, right? So you're saying that, so this is a podcast, we're not going to go deep into how linear feedback shift registers work because no one wants to listen to that on a podcast, but you can read the paper if you're interested. Um, and uh, I don't know, I, I feel like it's important to state whether you have any serious evidence that this wasn't just a coincidental weakness. Yeah. Maybe they just happened to identify it and fix it with GA2. How do you know this was expressly intentional? This is, uh, as I was, I mentioned the primitive polynomials earlier, right? That there are a lot of them. 
uh, of this kind of degree we're talking about. And, and it doesn't matter which one you choose, you get the maximal sequence for, for a single register. So if you had just picked, picked some at random, uh, you would not introduce this weakness. And, and that's exactly what we did, right? We, we picked like uh, 1 million times we generated AGA1 variants at random, and never did we produce this weakness. So, so, so it actually has to be constructed uh, in a way in order for this to appear, or you really have to guess, try a lot of time. But maybe, but maybe they picked it at random, but had really, really, really bad yeah, luck. But that is like, yeah, they said <laughs> in the German newspapers, that's like winning the lottery twice in a row. Okay, so what are what are just to be clear? What are the odds of that happening? I don't remember exactly the numbers, but we do have a graph in the paper, etc. Maybe Gautam knows. Okay. Uh, I think we did about one million experiments, and we never got anything quite as bad as the, the real one. So that's really unlikely, and I. Actually, I would like also to, to mention something else. There's a, a recent paper by uh, Christoph Bayerle, Patrick Felke, and Gregor Leander, where they build up on, uh, on this work. And they actually show a method how to build such a cipher with a backdoor. And this is apparently the method that, that was used to design GA1. I mean, it really matches what happens in GA1. So it's very hard to get it randomly, but there is a method to get such a weakness deliberately. So that's another evidence. You should send me the link to this paper because I will link to it in the podcast description uh, alongside your paper. And sure, that absolutely. way people it's can print. learn more about yeah. that. Perfect. Thank you. I don't know if there's a chat um, here. So who designed this? Yeah, there is a chat uh, on the platform we're using to record this podcast. Um, yeah, you can send it here. Thank you. I got it. Okay. So who designed this? Who designed GA1? Who designed GA2? Well, it was a uh, Etsy, uh, a European telecommunication standardization something. I don't remember exactly the, the name, but uh, they had a working group back then who, who uh, created a cipher. So I don't know who the exact people who were in there. Um, I don't know if that's public even, but uh, yeah, they decided. Okay. Uh, well, so how practical was the attack on GA1 and how practical was the attack on GA2? Um, could I just uh, set up like a little antenna next to someone's cell phone and intercept communications between them and their cell phone tower and then using my um, basically fancy 2000s era gaming PC uh, break everything and listen to everything they're saying? Was it really that simple or was was it more involved, uh, Gaetan? So yes, today you would just, I think, need an antenna to capture the traffic. Then you have to, to know a few, uh, well, some bits of plain text, because well, that's always the case in cryptography. If you only have the ciphertext, usually you cannot do anything with it. You need some assumptions about the plain text. But this is not very hard in the case of GA1, because you have some headers, you have some IP addresses in there, and we only need 64 bits of known plain text. And then from those 64 bits, you recover the key and you can decipher the rest of the plain text. So that's in the case of GEA1. For GEA2, it's uh, harder. The complexity is much harder. Well, it's significantly harder, but also we need much more known plain text to attack GEA2. We need the full frame to be known. So that's uh, 1,600 bits, if I remember correctly. And of that's course, in practice, this is much harder. It's 1,600 bytes, actually. 
Oh, right. Yeah. 106,000 bytes. Yeah, that's even more. <laughs> Can you combine uh, plain text from different frames? So in the case of GA1, we can up to a point. We need, I think, at least 32 bits in a single frame, and the rest can be in different frames. Hmm. Uh, but and, and how much of that plain text can you derive from known predictable stuff like protocol version headers, whatever, like uh, data structure headers and stuff like that? I don't know the exact details. I haven't, uh, I haven't looked at actual GPRS packets, but some people in the team have looked, and they say it's uh, it's quite easy. Okay. Well, so how, how confident can we be in today's standards? So, what what do cell phones even use these days? Like, if I'm again going out in the city and using my iPhone to connect to the internet and send photos. Uh, what encryption standard am I using specifically in order to do all that? For uh, I suppose I would be using 4G and 5G, and if I'm in a tunnel or something, I'd be using maybe 3G, right, or 2G even. Uh, what are the standards that are relevant there, and how on earth can I know that they're trustworthy given what you've discovered about these previous standards? So uh, the, the 2G standards were secret at the time they were designed, But then at the time they moved to 3G and later, all the standards are public. So all the cryptography in 3G, 4G, 5G is completely public and has been analyzed. And it's really, we have much more confidence in those standards. So in, uh, in 3G, the, the main algorithm is based on Kasumi, which is a Japanese block cipher. I think in 4G, it's mostly based on AES. And in 5G, I'm not sure, but uh, probably also something based on AES. I think that uh, 5G was analyzed uh, also using formal verification tools, um, uh, some of which were developed probably at INRIA and also by uh, the Tamarin team. So there's a lot of formal proofs on 5G security. I think they also found a bunch of weaknesses, so I'll try to link those uh, papers as well in the podcast description. Um, so would you say that today's ciphers are uh, following best practices for these designs. So things things have shifted from some guy in an office somewhere being instructed to make sure export controls are met in secret. And now we can be more confident that there is involvement from a more open and more scientific community and that ciphers are reliable. Uh, Howard? Uh, yes, I think we can be much more confident in, in these ciphers that, that have been designed in the open, uh, published and analyzed uh, in the academic community. Um, so, so, so the cryptographic community really discourages uh, secret designs uh, anything. It's uh, normally they can turn into weaknesses. And, and uh, I mean, it, it really helps to have your cipher analyzed and, and well known. So, so these days we don't really accept uh, secret designs, I would say. I would just like to add, there's still some political pressure inside those standards, and some countries insist to have their own algorithms inside the standards. So it's still not completely the, the best uh, situation we could have. Yes, we need to have uh, algorithmic sovereignty. Uh, this, is, uh, this is a term we tend to hear around these parts these days, technical sovereignty, technological sovereignty, algorithmic sovereignty. But let's not get into that, because we will rant about it for seven hours and be very angry. But um, So... Uh, well, here's an interesting uh, parallel, actually. So at INRIA in 2015, uh, the PhD lab that I was working in published a very interesting paper 
where they showed that TLS, a completely different uh, standard unrelated to these algorithms, and that's used today in web browsers to protect web browser data and also mm-hmm. other, other places, of course. Um, so a long time ago, TLS was forced to have something called an export cipher suite. So this is like a bunch of algorithms that they were forced to use because they were really weak and breakable. And this paper showed that these cipher suite implementations from, I don't know how many years ago, like 20 years ago or something, you could uh, exploit bugs in OpenSSL to trigger these cipher suites. And this was even possible on the NSA's website. And they included like uh, screenshots of NSA.gov being vulnerable to this in their paper in their presentations and on many other websites, including, I think, maybe the tips page of the FBI website, so a bunch of websites like that, to show that this had a very high-profile impact, right? And so the way that this attack worked is that you had these uh, protocols and these ciphers that were designed a million years ago, uh, not meant to be used today, uh, not really used today, but you could exploit stuff in the code to force a security downgrade and then force today's browsers and today's servers to use those old and broken cipher suites and with, with disastrous consequences. Uh, this could potentially apply here too. You know, it seems like there could be, basically this is, so GA1 is basically like an export cipher suite, right? An export cipher, not a cipher suite. And so could there be a potential downgrade attack here? I see both of you raised your hand 20 times. So whoever wants to go first. <laughs> okay, I mean, this is exactly the case here as well, right? Because today's phones, they actually do support GA1 and 2, even though they were not supposed to. I have another example as well. I mean, uh, you, you brought up the TLS and the downgrade possibilities there for the export suites. Uh, we have the same here with the GA1 <clears throat> and GA2 that, that still exists, even though it was supposed to be deprecated years ago. We also have the Wi-Fi standard, right? Uh, in, in, in the very beginning, uh, we had WEP. WEP, which was disastrous uh, security-wise. It was supposed to wired equivalent privacy. It uh, was very bad. So it was quickly replaced by WPA and WPA2, but it still took a long time to get rid of it, right? For, for, for a decade, you still had Wi-Fi networks that supported web and, and where you could, that used web, right? So it's just, it's just a, an, another sign that Bad crypto is very bad, uh, difficult to get rid of, just for backward compatibility reasons, and and, and uh, people are afraid that something will not work if we don't support everything. But but you but you so quoted so, so. studies and and actual evidence in your paper that showed that usage of GA one and GA two was virtually non-existent. So how could someone reasonably make a backwards compatibility argument in that case? No, I mean I mean it's it's not a default option, right? But uh, for a, a kind of downgrade attacks, if you're forced into using 2G, okay, then GA1 and 2 kicks in. Well, so, um, did you, so did you guys investigate the practical possibility of someone exploiting uh, a downgrade attack? Because in the paper that I was mentioning about TLS, they showed that they had like proof of concept, like they showed how to do it. They, they had an exploit that made it possible because of a specific bug in like line 1,234 in this file in OpenSSL.c or something. So did you uh, investigate the practical possibility of such a downgrade attack? Because if you can actually find an attack like that and show that it's exploitable, then everyone will deprecate GA1 and GA2 yesterday. They will do it immediately. So I I haven't looked at it personally, but uh, some of our co-authors did have a look. 
And in the paper, we mentioned that there is a scenario where we could exploit this, because if you have a connection uh, ongoing in GPRS using the newer algorithms, so GA3, GA4, you will be using some key to encrypt your connection. And then if I come up later with my antenna and I force you to use GEA1 for a new connection, in some cases, you will reuse the same key because that's how the key management works. And then I can attack the key using the weaker GEA1 encryption and then decrypt your previous session that was actually encrypted with a good cipher. So there are scenarios where the weakness of GEA1 can be used to break more secure uh, well, hold on. Ciders. This is this is incredibly important. And so, so uh, uh, what which protocols would you be downgrading from? Uh, so you're saying that you can downgrade so downgrade down to GA one or GA two because you can or, or reuse keys from from these protocols. But which protocol security would would be affected? Would this be something that would affect the security of a three G session of a four G session? Oh. Uh, I'm not sure about the details, but I think it would only affect uh, GPRS sessions, so 2G sessions. Yeah, but, but, I but think 2G correct. sessions with a better encryption. I think it's correct what you what you said that uh, what you explained. Uh, so so you can have a DA3 encrypted uh, connection using a key. You cannot break that one. But then, if you are then forced to use DA1, you can break that one, and it uses the same key. So then you actually know the key for the GEA3 encrypted stuff afterwards. Okay. I am not convinced that you guys looked at this as, as, as seriously as you should have. Um, and this is not a criticism, you know, but still, like, I, I'm just telling you, I think there's a wasted opportunity here. Because if you look at more devices and if you're able to identify uh, serious downgrade scenarios, there could be, so do you, do you think it's possible that maybe you missed uh, scenarios where someone, for example, could have an iPhone 8 or, or even a, a more recent iPhone or one of the recent Samsung uh, Galaxy uh, smartphones um, and other Android phones, and they could be using 3G or 4G. So we're talking not 2G, we're talking 3G, 4G, 5G, probably not 5G, but let's say 3G and 4G. And thanks to uh, something to do with either GA1, GA2 being implemented, being supported, not being fully deprecated and removed, uh, having something to do with the code, there could be a serious potential for a downgrade attack from uh, 3G, 4G, or some serious weaknesses introduced to a 3G and 4G session. Is that something that you that you can rule out as unlikely, or is it still likely according to so, your research? Um... It might be possible, but I think there's a higher level picture we have to look at, which is that 2G is not very secure in the first place. As soon as you have an active attacker, the active attacker can spoof an antenna, and then all your connection will go through him, and he can just decrypt them. So as long as your phone allows you to move to 2G, you can be broken by an active adversary. So now the thing is, with this attack on GA1, you can do it with a passive adversary. So that's the big difference. But in terms of practical relevance today, since GA1 is not used in a normal scenario, we would need some kind of active attack anyway. And therefore, we know that there is not much security. So the scenarios where we can really exploit it will always be uh, something a little bit tricky where you, you maybe you could also do something else. And uh, it will always be borderline, I mean.
I really think it's important to investigate this in more detail, because if, if there's some way to force the downgrade of a session into some protocol where uh, passive uh, exploitation or even minimally, um, you know, an active attacker exploitation, but with minimal requirements as possible on today's phones, that would be huge, right? And uh, downgrade attacks like this, you know, like in the case of TLS, people were being forced to use export cipher suites that were obsolete for decades. Uh, you have a table here in your paper, table four, that shows an overview of the phones and baseband supporting GEAX. So is GEAX either GA1 or GA2? So I'm afraid you're, we, we should have had one of our co-authors here uh, because neither Gatan or myself are really experts on, on the mobile technology part of it. Uh, one of the German partners uh, knows a lot more about this. The the Apple iPhone XR, which is from a couple of years ago, the iPhone 8, uh, these are very recent smartphones. Samsung Galaxy S9, uh, OnePlus 6T. I think I had a OnePlus 6T at one point. Um, both, all of these phones, Huawei P9, uh, HMD Global, Nokia, uh, all of these support GA1 and GA2. Um, I would say that uh, I, I wish I wish we had more of your German partners here that were uh, into the smartphone engineering stack to talk about this. But I, I would seriously suspect that there's potential here for some kind of downgrade attack of some sort, um, maybe not in the classical sense. But still, if these are supported and if there is especially if there's um, pushback against being them being removed, then wow. Yes, Howard. Yeah, there's absolutely room for, for future work here, uh, as, as you're saying. So so we know that GA1 and GA2, they are still supported by today's phone, but they will actually not be uh, for a long time more. Uh, but, but yes, uh, maybe there are downgrades attacks possible. Uh, hmm. Boy, wouldn't it be interesting if someone listening to this podcast could find the time to investigate this more, right, Howard and Gaetan? Hmm. We yeah, wondered loudly. Okay, yes. Hmm, I wonder if any student potentially with a project idea, looking for a project idea, listening to this, had some time to look more into it. Okay, I think I've been clear enough to the audience. Um, all right, well, that we're, we're approaching the time limit here. Uh, thank you so much for this interesting paper. I do agree that future work is, is imperative here. Uh, I think that there's a lot of stuff that needs to be ex explored. Um, anything to say, Howard and Gaetan, before we sign off? Yes, Gaetan, go ahead. Uh, maybe something we didn't discuss yet. Uh, if we look at the history of 2G telephony, we actually know that uh, the encryption algorithms for the voice layer in 2G, so that's A51 and A52, they were also relatively weak, and A52 was deliberately weakened. So there is a similar situation to GA1, GA2, and that also supports the idea that it is deliberate in the case of GA1. Yeah. Yeah, I'm sure all of these, uh, all of this history of deliberately weakened ciphers, you know, like, what are the odds of there being downgrade attacks to these deliberately weakened ciphers? Who knows? It seems shockingly unlikely. Y yes, Howard. Yeah, uh, I mean, just to, to close off, uh, these ciphers were deliberately weakened, but uh, I, I don't think there was any malicious intent, really. It, it happened because of export control. Export control was because of national security. Everyone had good intentions, right? Um but okay, uh, I would prefer it if they were just upfront about it. Uh, that okay, we have a forty-bit cipher. This is what it is. 
And we have it because of export controls. As soon as these go away, we will have 64-bit. Yes, the world would have been a better place if everyone was more upfront about everything. This is, as a general rule, I wish people were just more upfront, period. Uh, but yes, I agree. So there are questions of national security here. It's not necessarily the case that anyone working for national security reasons um, is necessarily some sort of evil mastermind that wants to spy on everyone. Uh, I think the, the problem is more that uh, secrecy lends way to corruption, just as a general rule. So you do want national secu security, you do want uh, general safety of people and populations, and you do want to you know, capture the terrorists and whatever, but you also want to be fully aware that all of these mechanisms, because they are civil mechanisms, need to be accountable. So when you have uh, designs like that um, that are secretly backdoored, that's, that's definitely a, a way to make accountability or to try to make accountability impossible. So I think that's, that's where I personally stand on this issue. And I hope uh, listeners investigate this more. Uh, okay, so Howard and Gaetan, thank you so much for joining Cryptography FM. Thanks um, for being on the show. Yeah, yeah thanks for having us. Absolutely. And maybe next time it'll be you on the show talking about your cool follow-up research that I hope people do with regards to this because, oh my God, seriously, like there really seems to be potential here. And I, I can't believe no one has, has like very, very strongly looked at this yet. Uh, I don't know. Cass Kremers' team, if you're listening, hello? <laughs> Check this out. But uh, there's a lot of other uh, competent teams out there. Um uh, and uh, it would be cool to have you on the show to talk about this and any related research or maybe something unrelated completely so long as it's interesting and has to do with, with cryptography uh, in general. Uh, but whether you're a listener or an active participant, I hope to see you again next time on Cryptography FM.